we think of autism and special needs and, and, and other psychiatric diagnoses more from an impairment model. But actually, they have a, a lot of strengths that I think aren't always appreciated. And I, I think the goal for our research really is, is to maximize the likelihood that all individuals will reach their full potential. That's Mark Shin, an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He has dual appointments in the Department of Psychiatry in the UNC School of Medicine and at the Carolina Institute for Developmental Disabilities. Welcome to Well Said, Carolina's official storytelling podcast. On today's episode, Mark will tell us more about his research at Carolina and the journey he took that led him to that research. When Mark first started college at Brown University, he wasn't even interested in the medical field or scientific research. You know, I was a young kid and I thought my aspirations were to kind of work a high powered job and make a lot of money. And, and so I actually studied economics when I was in college. As an economics major, I actually worked in Cambridge working in like the business field and in finance. And I just didn't find it personally gratifying. So it actually completely changed my perception of what I wanted to do. And I realized what I found most gratifying was working with kids. I basically kind of hit the reset button and looked inward and asked myself, what are the things that I've always found gratifying? What are the aspects in my life that give me the most joy or the most gratification? And invariably, I, I always came back to working with kids. And so I did a complete 180 and I moved back to California and, and started working with kids with special needs. And so I worked for this organization in Los Angeles, the Institute for Applied Behavior Analysis, and started working with kids. Mark trained in behavioral treatment with that organization for six years. A typical day started at an elementary school where he would work with kids in a special education setting. In the afternoons, he would work with younger children who had recently been diagnosed with autism. At night, Mark would work with adults with autism in their homes. I would help them get jobs, and I would also help them with supported living or independent living. So assisting them on doing everything that we do as adults, cooking, cleaning, getting ready for dates, going to the movies, things that everyone wants to do. They just need a little bit more assistance. So in the course of a day, I was very fortunate to see sort of the, the strengths and challenges for a lot of different individuals and how those were addressed and how they sort of handled those. Throughout the day, questions would keep popping up in Mark's head. What is causing this very complex disorder? Why do some individuals have such a different symptom presentation than others? Why do some individuals have certain strengths that other individuals don't? Why do some have medical challenges like seizures and some do not? Why do some individuals respond better to behavioral treatments than others? Why were some individuals diagnosed really early on? And why was it a very straightforward diagnosis? Whereas other individuals were not diagnosed till much later on in life. And how was that missed and why, you know, why was that the case? All of these questions relate to the challenges of diagnosing and treating autism. Autism is a, 
neurodevelopmental disorder. The developmental disorder piece of it is that it's a condition where its symptoms emerge over the course of development, so over time. So it's not detectable at birth, for example. It's currently diagnosed based upon behavioral symptoms that are present. And the two kind of main areas of, of symptoms that its diagnosis is based on are around social and communication deficits and also the, the presence of stereotyped and repetitive behaviors. And so that can manifest itself in a variety of different ways, repetitive motor behaviors or an insistence on sameness or, or ritualistic behaviors. So sometimes what you will see like in a child is, is someone who is sort of fascinated by organizing or lining up their toys or spinning in their chair or flapping their arms or their hands. Each of those things and language delays and social difficulties are present in a lot of children by themselves uh, or sort of each symptom, if you look at them sort of as a class by themselves, may be present in a lot of children. Autism is diagnosed when all of those symptoms come together and start impairing a child's ability to socialize or learn new skills. One of the challenges in autism research is that the current diagnostic process is very subjective and requires an expert clinician, usually a pediatrician or a child psychiatrist, to be able to identify those signs and symptoms and how they congregate into an autism diagnosis. One of the challenges with having a subjective behavioral definition of autism is that there's a lot of heterogeneity in individuals with autism, meaning there's a lot of variability in the behaviors that they exhibit, the timing of when they exhibit those behaviors, and also the, the severity of those behaviors. You may have a child who has a lot of social difficulties, but doesn't have these stereotype and repetitive behaviors. You may have another child who has a lot of these stereotype repetitive behaviors, but their language may be relatively intact. And you may have a third child that has sort of a moderate amount of difficulties in social ability and repetitive behaviors, but they have a lot of medical challenges like gastrointestinal issues or, or seizures. Currently, we are diagnosing all of those kids with an umbrella term called autism. You know, there's actually a saying in the field that if you've met one child with autism, then you've met one child with autism. That heterogeneity or that variability makes it, one, very difficult to study and very difficult to treat. Because the diagnosis of autism is subjectively judged based on behaviors, and we don't have objective biological markers for autism currently, Mark says kids are diagnosed later than they should be. Across the United States, the average age of diagnosis ranges from four to six years of age. That's just an average. So that's lower in some places, like if you live close to the Research Triangle and close to like UNC, for example, with access to really great healthcare and clinical experts, then that average age of diagnosis is lower. But it tends to be higher in other areas that are more rural or have less access to healthcare. What the result of that is, of course, is that when diagnosis not happen until later, then obviously treatment is not happening until later. And what we've seen in the field is that the earlier you intervene and, and start behavioral treatments, 
the better the outcomes are for those children. So not only is their autistic symptoms reduced if you intervene earlier, but their reliance on special education services and public supports are also reduced the earlier you intervene. So I think that there's a lot of motivation from just a public health perspective for us to be able to identify autism earlier with objective markers that can be applied across the general population and that could be available to all families and not just families that live very close to a good hospital. With all of those questions and challenges on his mind, Mark decided to switch careers once again, enrolling in grad school in 2007. It occurred to me over the course of that time that perhaps the biggest impact that I could make in this field was trying to answer some of those questions that kept cropping up for me. The point that I decided it was time to go back to graduate school is when I realized that there were more questions that I had than we had available answers to. Mark started to find some clues that made an impact while he was pursuing his doctorate in cognitive neuroscience. His research found that babies who would develop autism had higher amounts of a fluid called cerebrospinal fluid in their brains. What CSF circulation does, as it circulates through the brain, it essentially cleans the brain. You can think of it as the filtration system of the brain or almost the, the plumbing system of the brain. Every day we get a fresh batch of CSF that's produced in our brain four times a day. So every six hours we get a fresh batch of CSF. And as it's circulating through the brain, it's cleaning the brain. It's basically washing away metabolites and inflammatory proteins that are secreted by brain cells just during normal brain function. And it's the role of the CSF as it cleans the brain to wash away those metabolites and those inflammatory proteins and drain them. At Carolina, Mark and Dr. Joseph Piven are studying this connection further. Joseph is a child psychiatrist and the director of the Carolina Institute for Developmental Disabilities. He leads the infant brain imaging study, which has been going on for 12 years. Mark and Joseph wanted to see if they could replicate Mark's finding that babies who would develop autism had higher amounts of CSF in their brains. And they wanted to replicate that finding in a much larger sample from the Infant Brain Imaging Study Network. And we did replicate and confirm those findings. In fact, the findings were virtually identical. Two years ago, Researchers from our team at UNC, as well as other universities through this IBIS network, the Infant Brain Imaging Study, published a series of papers that showed that brain imaging in the first year of life using magnetic resonance imaging, or MRIs, can actually predict which infants will go on to develop autism at age two. The reason why that's important is because MRI can serve as an as a objective test, possibly, to identify brain differences as early as six months of age. That was really an important step forward in the field because, as I described, currently we're diagnosing risk for autism behaviorally, and those behaviors don't arise until one to two years of age because we're looking at behaviors like social deficits and language delays. What our studies have shown is that brain differences are occurring 
prior to symptom onset. So prior to a child exhibiting behavioral signs of autism, there are brain changes that are preceding that. And those brain changes can be detected with MRI. Before they conclude what they found is fact for all children, Mark and the other researchers want to reproduce their findings with a new group of children. The first step in, in all good scientific research uh, when you have a, a, a compelling finding, is to replicate those findings. We want to make sure that these results can be confirmed in a larger population of infants before we implement this type of approach for the general population. What we've done is that we were very fortunate to be awarded a, a new grant from the National Institutes of Health to recruit a whole new group of infants from five universities around the United States. That's the University of North Carolina, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, the University of Minnesota, Washington University in St. Louis, and the University of Washington in Seattle. So five sites that are strategically placed where families can go to their local site or the ones that's closest to their region or where they live and enroll their infants that are younger siblings of older children that have already been diagnosed with autism and enroll in a, a new study. Its main goal is to replicate the research findings from the earlier phase of the study. This new study launched on May 29th. So we're enrolling families from across the United States. They come into, say, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for their first behavioral and MRI scan when the baby's six months of age. We follow them longitudinally from six months, 12 months, to 24 months of age. And they receive expert clinical feedback on their child's development. And then we analyze their MRI data. Again, the goal is really to see if we can confirm our brain predictors from the first phase of the study in an entirely new cohort of, of infants with the hope that this will inform early treatment and early predictors for autism. This latest study is just another way that Mark continues to give back to the kids and adults he worked with in California. The families and individuals that I've worked with have really supported me in, in making that switch from direct treatment to research. I've been incredibly lucky to have mentorship and training here at, at UNC and at my graduate school university. I think that we're making a lot of progress. I am as hopeful as ever that we are identifying what will be really important knowledge around the, the first signs of autism in the first year of life. I find it very gratifying that we are starting to identify changes in the brain that precede behavioral symptoms that hopefully will be translated into clinical practice. If you want to learn more about the Carolina Institute for Developmental Disabilities or more about Mark's research, please go to cidd.unc.edu. Thank you for listening to this episode of Well Said. See you next week.